It's the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. Being a bit of a geek growing up, I read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings on kind of an annual basis. And so for me, I like this quote from J.R.R. Tolkien. But the quote itself, it poses an interesting question for us. Because as we saw the faces in the video, people that we may recognize from our various locations here at Southridge, and as we look around the room at the faces of the people around us, ordinary people, and I hope that we're not offended when we, as we're referred to as ordinary people, I'm gonna be doing that today. I know we all grew up hearing that we're very special and those are the kind of things that we're, we tell our kids. That's true. But today we're gonna to be talking about ourselves as ordinary people. And as we look at the faces of these ordinary people, the question is, can it be true that it's up to these people and to ourselves that we're the ones that through our actions that we can keep the darkness of the world at bay? Because the darkness of the world, as we look around us, sometimes that can seem pretty daunting. For my wife Taryn and I, we spent the last five years living in Southern Africa. And during those years, uh, we came across a lot of people who are from the country of Zimbabwe. And Zimbabwe is an incredible place. Um, it's beautiful and it's had a lot of prosperity in years past. But in the last few decades, uh, Zimbabwe has really struggled due to um, the leadership and a lot of the choices that have been made there. And one of the ways that Zimbabwe has struggled is economically. To give you a bit of a picture of what it's been like, uh, in 2004, Canada uh, had an inflation rate of about 3%. That's a bit high for Canada. Right now we're at about a 1% inflation rate. In Zimbabwe in 2004, they had an inflation rate of 231 million percent. To give you an idea of what that looks like physically, when, when Zimbabwe was going through these things, um, you would see people in the streets who were pushing wheelbarrows filled with cash just to be able to buy ordinary goods. And people would work for the month and they'd get paid at the end of the month and when they'd get their check and then they'd cash their check, by the time that they got the money and went to the store, a lot of the times they wouldn't be able to buy bread with the money that they had worked for for a month. And Zimbabwe was going through a lot of these struggles and as these things were happening and people were wondering what was going on, they needed a way to be able to respond. And for one person who became a friend of ours named Lionel, he is, he is very skilled in the art of storytelling. And Lionel uh, especially was gifted and is gifted in the art of playwriting. And so Lionel wanted to be able to address the things happening in his country. He was seeing people who are having to, to buy things with $100 trillion bills with the, as the inflation rate just grew and things were crazy and the government was printing more money and there was all these things and he wanted to be able to address this and speak to this. And so Lionel wrote a play. And one day as he was leaving the theater, uh, Lionel walked out of the theater and there was a car that pulled up that was unmarked and a few men jumped out of the car and they grabbed Lionel and they threw him in the car and they drove out of town into a remote place out in the bush. And they took Lionel out of the car and they began to question him and they said, why are you trying to subvert the government? What are you trying to say about our leadership? And after a little while, they stopped asking him questions and instead they just started to beat him. And they beat Lionel so severely that they thought they had killed him and they were okay with that. And so they took Lionel and they put him underneath a bush and they kind of hid him away even though it was pretty far away from people as it was, and they took his cell phone out of his pocket so there wouldn't be any industrious friends of his who would be able to track him down by his cell phone signal. And they went back to town and they reported that 
the playwright Lionel has been killed in a car accident and that went into the news. In the meantime, his family, they didn't necessarily believe that. Lionel, he was lying under this bush and they started calling his phone. And fortunately for Lionel, he's an industrious guy and he knew that it was a little bit cheaper if you're calling network to network on phones. So he had two cell phones so he could call people from different networks and be able to save money that way. And so they had taken the one phone out of his pocket but the other phone was still there. And as Lionel was lying there unconscious, his phone was ringing and there just happened to be somebody who was walking a route that they didn't normally walk and they were out in the bush and they heard the phone ringing and they searched and they looked underneath the bush and they found Lionel lying there and they realized that he was still alive. And they dragged him out and they took him home and they nursed him back to health. A real life Good Samaritan story. And they figured out who he was. He told them who he was as they nursed him back to health. And they helped him to stay in hiding until he was well enough to be smuggled out of the country. And he went into exile across the border in the country of Botswana. And that's where we met Lionel. And as Lionel was in exile, he found that he was surrounded by other people from Zimbabwe who were also exiles, who had also experienced similar things. And they were some of the lucky ones who had gotten out. Some other people hadn't been as fortunate. And the people who were out there had trauma and they were there and they were surrounding him. And he didn't know what to do and they didn't know what to do. And the question for Lionel was faced with this systemic darkness that was happening in the world around him. And specifically right there in Zimbabwe, what could Lionel do? What can they do about the darkness in the world? That's a question that faces all of us. And here in Canada, we're blessed to not be experiencing that same level of oppression as he experienced at that time. But we have our own issues that we're trying to deal with and that we need to deal with here locally. Even last week, we had a message um, that was a difficult message that was talking about racial tensions and the things that have happened in our past here in Canada and continue to happen in injustices that have been done, that have never been made right, and that we need to be able to figure out a way to deal with. And we talk about the disparity between the 1% who seem to have so much and the 99% who seem to have so little. And here in Niagara, we know that we're going through our own um, issues economically right now as there are rising housing prices in Toronto, and as people in Toronto need to move a little bit further out and end up buying houses closer to our area and then the housing prices in Niagara go up and there's less houses available and it means that there's more people needing more affordable housing and then there's not enough affordable housing and people are losing their housing and there are more people who are homeless. And we're very blessed at Southridge to be able to be a part of a community that's trying to deal with some of these things and in our Glenridge location, we're very blessed to be able to be a part of the social services community and the landscape here in Niagara uh, through our homeless shelter. And it's a great thing. There's amazing things happening at our shelter every day, incredible people doing incredible work. And yet, even as we're addressing the issues, every month between four and 500 people are turned away from our shelter because there's not enough room. And that's just one of the things. We know that internationally, even as we've spoken about Zimbabwe, that there are other things that are going on, that there are wars, that there are conflicts in Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq. And we hear about all these things and, and Zimbabwe itself is not even on this list of the 60 international conflicts, conflicts that are happening in international contexts that Zimbabwe is more about human rights violations and things like that. And it doesn't even make the list of the 60 armed conflicts that are going on in the world today. So much of what's happening, it's a bit easier almost to be able to 
ignore it. It's sometimes hard to even talk about it because there's some underlying political things and we don't want to say the wrong thing and we don't know necessarily where people are coming from. And we know that there are nuances to each situation, whether it's Zimbabwe or otherwise, that there are more that's happening we don't know. And we don't know exactly what to say. As Canadians, I think this has been true for a long time, but as Canadians, um, in international contexts, a lot of the time we are mistaken for Americans. I think it has something to do with having similarly obnoxious accents or something like that. And as we are mistaken for Americans, a lot of the time people would come up to us, and especially in this last year, I would find people would come up and they would say, oh, oh, what do you think about, uh, about President Trump? I'm not trying to make any political statements in what I'm saying here, but we know that there are, there are gonna be mixed, there are gonna be motivations behind what people are saying and they have sort of reasons for the questions that they're asking. So they'd say, what do you think about President Trump? And, be, and I wouldn't quite know what to say. And Taryn and I would sort of be, uh, well, you know, we're, we're president. You know, actually, we're, we're Canadian. We don't know anything about presidents. We actually have a prime minister ourselves. I'm not really sure. We're about prime ministers. And they would say, oh, okay, okay. Oh, pre- Canada, pre- that, that handsome guy who, that handsome guy is your prime minister. Yeah, yeah, the handsome guy, the handsome guy. And we, the guy who takes selfies with, yeah, the, selfie, the handsome selfie guy. Right, right, absolutely. And that's a little bit of an easier conversation to start having with people. If you're talking about taking selfies with people, and I'm not making any political statements about our Canadian system here, and I'm saying this, but it's a little bit easier to talk about the easy things than to even address the things that are happening around us, let alone be able to do anything about them. And in the face of such overwhelming systemic darkness that we see and the sort of helplessness that we feel to do anything about it, what can we possibly do to change that? And this morning as we talk about this and as we kick off this series, we want to be able to start off with the realization that even with the things that we see happening around us locally and in the world globally that seem so overwhelming and are unprecedented seemingly and we want to be able to acknowledge the fact that yes, there are technologies that are different and ways of communicating about the things that we're seeing in the world around us that are a little bit different than we've seen before. But this is not necessarily as unique a story as we might imagine. A few thousand years ago in the Middle East, they were going through a time of large scale and local distress that was arguably more dire than anything that we're experiencing here today or even globally. There was a refugee crisis that had been happening for generations. There were global, there were large-scale empires, powers that were taking over the known world and that were battling each other in their roles in the known world. And they were trampling the smaller empires and the smaller nations that were there. And they kept on trampling them over and over as they fought for their supremacy with their own militaries and technologies that were the newest technologies that they had at that time as well. And they were overwhelming the nations that they were trampling with their taxes as they took over them and they were taxing them heavily and they were oppressing them in their religion and in their society and in their politics and in every way imaginable. And in response, there were groups of terrorists that were rising up trying to come up with their own variation and understanding of what a kingdom should look like as they violently tried to make that happen in their region in the world at that time. There was so much that was going on that was similar. And as all of these things were happening and all of this craziness had been going on for so long, there were people who were noticing it. And one of these people was a man in the nation of Israel and he was writing some of the things that he was seeing. He was writing them down. And he was writing down what was happening and what he saw happening and where it was leading. His name is Isaiah. And as Isaiah was writing about these things, 
he spoke about what it was starting to look like and he said these words. Isaiah said, then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. And for Isaiah and for other people at that time, there had never been a more serious need for change in the darkness and the things that they were seeing around them and in the distress. There was never more key a time for revolution to happen. And a lot of the time we talk about the problems happening around us and we just identify them and we speak about them and we don't necessarily come up with many solutions. And Isaiah was writing down these problems too and as he was writing them down, he started to come up and we started to, you start to see more and more in his writing in an increasing way, one solution that Isaiah sees is coming. Isaiah sees that there's one solution that's coming to all of these problems and to all of this darkness and the hopes of Isaiah and the people of Israel, his nation around him, they started to be raised and they started to pin their hopes on this one hope that they were seeing coming. And Isaiah himself, later in this same passage as we just read, he writes this. He says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Israel knew that the one who they called the Messiah, the one would show the way for the people to rise up against the darkness, that this Messiah was the key to the change in the system. And as a community here, for us together as a community, we affirm that this one who they were waiting for, the one that Isaiah was referring to and that Israel was waiting for, is the person of Jesus. And that Jesus was the person who was going to turn the tide on the system of darkness that he saw. Jesus' own mother, who was probably a teenager at the time, when she realized what was about to happen and who the child that she was going to have was going to be and what he was going to be bringing, she didn't pull any punches when she spoke about what she saw coming. Mary said this. She said, God bared his arm and showed his strength, scattered the bluffing braggarts. He knocked tyrants off their high horses and pulled victims out of the mud. The starving poor sat down to a banquet. The callous rich were left out in the cold. And can we hear what Mary after generations of oppression and the overwhelming local and global despair that she and her people were feeling, can we hear what she's proclaiming? Because in this moment, as Mary sees that the system needs to change, she's announcing the start of the revolution. Mary sees that it's coming, that through Jesus, the system is about to change. Advent season, we're in Advent season now, and this is the season where the advent, the coming that we're anticipating in this season is the coming of Jesus himself. It's the coming of 
the revolution, the changing of the system, which has overwhelmed us, which has been dark, which often feels dark, and which leaves us feeling helpless. So what did Jesus' revolution look like? Revolutions bring power. They tend to bring power to the people from the few who have been holding the power in check and who have been doing things the way they want to. Revolutions tend to bring that power to the masses of people who have been oppressed by it. And Jesus was a part of that from the start. Jesus, even though he was the Messiah, he was the one. Jesus didn't become born into the one percent. Jesus was born as a part of the 99%, as a part of the masses. And then Jesus is a part of these masses right from the start, from his own birth. The people that he called in were among that group as well. The first ones in, the first ones invited were the ones who were literally, who literally found themselves on a daily basis on the outskirts of society. The shepherds were the first ones who were invited in to be a part of the celebration of the coming of the revolution, of the revolutionary Jesus himself. And the next ones, as we know from our nativity scenes that we start to see set up in the next little while, are the foreigners, the wise men, people who didn't even seem like they were a part of the story, are some of the first ones invited to celebrate the beginning of this part of the story. And then Jesus, as he grows up into his ministry, Jesus chooses his inner circle, and his inner circle of people, the ones that he calls to be at his side, are the ones that you wouldn't expect. The people who are corrupt government lackeys in the tax collectors. The people who have seen the system and who have decided to violently try to implement their own version of it. Terrorists. And ordinary people, fishermen. Ordinary people are part of his inner circle. And as they go around and as the ministry unfolds, Jesus and his inner circle, they go and the people that they empower, the people in their community that they seek out are the people who you wouldn't expect to be the ones that you would want to go to first as you're starting a movement. They're going to the people, they go to the people who are marginalized because of their gender. Jesus goes to the people who have been ostracized because of their sexual choices. Jesus goes to the people who are poor in spirit and mourners Jesus goes to the hungry and thirsty and meek and merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted, ordinary people. And as Jesus goes around and there becomes a bit of a groundswell of people who start to hear that Jesus is doing something and he's making a difference and he's ready to start this movement and he's ready to start this revolution as people are following him and as he's gaining momentum and he's reaching critical masses of people to be able to rise up and do something about this system and they know he's gonna tell them how he wants to do it. With the people around him, Jesus explains what it would look like to change the world what it would look like to change and to, to fight the dark systems that are in place. And then Jesus proclaimed to the people, he said, out of your love for God, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. To change the world, love your neighbor. Massive change is what he's trying to bring and what he's going to bring, but he's doing it through a kind of Completely unexpected action. How does that make any sense? How did that make any sense to those people? And how does that make sense to us now when we hear that? In the current worldly system of power, it doesn't make sense. It's foolish to think that this is something that can make a difference. And yet, in the scriptures we're told, 
in 1 Corinthians, it says, don't deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As foolish as it sounds, the followers of Jesus loving our neighbors is what it takes to change the world, to change the darkness. So what does it, what does it look like? What happened when Jesus started to initiate that system? And what has been happening since? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus said these things and since Jesus lived this way. And what has that been looking like now? The system that was in place, Jesus said he came to proclaim a new system and his new and different way of living has been in place ever since. A few times to describe what was gonna be happening and how it was gonna work, Jesus used a phrase. He said, a time is coming and has now come. A time is coming and has now come. Jesus spoke about the fact that as this has now come, he said, this is relevant right now as I'm saying this to you. Loving your neighbors to change the world is now a thing. And yet Jesus also said, a time is coming. And he was describing the fact that the kingdom that he's proclaiming, the things that are coming, the things that have started now, they haven't come into their full fruition yet. That's still to come and that's going to be unfolding. Jesus initiated this new way of doing things and it has applied ever since. But the application is unfolding. We increasingly catch glimpses of how this works though. In 2012, in the small town of Urhus in Denmark, uh, there were some strange things that started to happen. The, the, it's a small town, but the police in that town started to get uh, frantic calls from parents of young adults. And, of, and the parents of these young adults were saying, uh, our sons are missing. And there were more and more of these parents who were calling in to this little police station in the small town saying, our sons are missing. Our young, our early 20s, late teens sons, they were going missing. And it started out as a few people. And pretty soon it was dozens of calls that they were getting about dozens of people who were going missing in their little town in Denmark. And they started to realize that this wasn't just happening in Urhus, this was happening in other places, in other Western countries. And these people, there were people that were going missing. And what they started to realize was that they were going missing because they were going to the Middle East and they were joining up with an organization called ISIS, which you may have heard of by a few different names, which we know is, has been known as a terrorist organization. And people were leaving and going to ISIS and joining in part of the terrorist activities that they were conducting. And the word that began to get out there by the other people who, the other towns and the larger places and the governments that were seeing this happening, they started to take a very strong tack, as you can imagine, with these people. And they said, we are not gonna stand for this. We are gonna deal with them strongly and aggressively. And we are, going to, we are going to prosecute them and we are going to find out what they've been doing and we are going to put an end to this right now because this has to stop and there can't be any more of this happening. And it kept happening. And there were more people who kept on joining and being a part of this exodus to the Middle East. And in Urhus, the small police force had to try to figure out what they were doing. It was just a few people on this police force. And they decided they were going to try something a little bit different, a lot different. And what they did was they knew that there were other people who had been in communication with these and were still probably in communication from their town with the people who are now in Syria. And they also saw that there were some people who were coming and 
back and it seemed like even through convoluted routes they were coming back from Syria and that they had probably been a part of this as well. And identifying these people, they decided that they were going to go to them and then they were going to invite them out for coffee. And the police in Uruhu started inviting people out for coffee and they would go and take them to their favorite, their own personal favorite place where their, you know, their family and their own friends would be and they would just have them, they would just hang out with them and they would say, hey, how are you doing? And they would talk to them a little bit about themselves and about their family life and they would just start to get to know them. And they did this with a few dozen people and a few hundred people and about 300 people. In the end, they had these times where they were hanging out with about 300 of these members of their community. And this was sort of a weird thing to do and it was disparaged in the media and people called this the Hug a Terrorist Program as they started hearing about it later. And this seemed like a bit of a strange way to respond to terrorism. And what they found in Urhus was that unlike in a lot of other places, in Urhus, as they were doing this, the flood of people that were leaving, and it was a flood because proportionate to their size, they were experiencing more people joining ISIS than any other place uh, in the Western world. But as they started doing this, the flood turned into a trickle and then stopped completely. And they had a complete turnaround and an end to these enlistments. This coffee with the neighbor, hug a terrorist program is foolishness. It was foolishness in the eyes of the world. And for the people of Urhus, this is what they did. And it proved to be real wisdom. It was a wise thing that they did. And it was completely unexpected. And it showed that, you know what? There is sometimes that just, it's not only that these small acts of ordinary people are going to be keeping the darkness at bay, but that in this new system of Jesus, that he proclaimed and that he said that we could be living. He said, when we do this, when, when we see some of these kind of stories, we realize As Isaiah says, the light has dawned, the darkness is being illuminated, and it's being eliminated. That these kind of acts actually don't keep the darkness at bay, but it actually destroys the darkness. The way that it's also described to us in the scriptures is as the actions of people doing these small things together in their own space, doing the small acts, the small everyday deeds, ordinary people doing these for their neighbors, And as we do it together and everybody doing it through the same purpose, that we're working together like a body, a body that's doing different things, but working together for that same purpose. And not just any body, but a body of Christ, Jesus, who told us that this is the way that we should be living. And if we can be doing those things and we're honoring the things that Jesus did and honoring by doing those same things ourselves, that that's what's going to make the difference. In 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks about the fact that by doing these types of actions, by doing the everyday deeds, by doing the things really that Jesus said that we should be doing and living the way that Jesus showed, we are building on Jesus himself an eternal foundation and we are using materials that are eternal as well. These kinds of actions are eternal and will be built on the foundation of Jesus and they're going to last and when we see these things happening in places like Uruhus, we realize it's, a, it's kind of a reminder for us that there's more happening behind the scenes than we even realize and that there's more in the meaning of what Jesus was telling us than we could have possibly imagined. It sounds a little bit too easy and in some ways it is and there's a catch because when we look at the fact that 
you know, it seems like we're doing something so big, changing the dark systems at play, the hard things in the world, pushing it back, eliminating it, and creating space for the world to be as it should be, that that should be something that's done on a large scale, that that should be something done by larger organizations, or that that should be something that's done in a more specifically coordinated way. And if we were to imagine that that's how it had to be done, and if we do imagine that, it's a little bit easier because we don't necessarily have to do anything. In that scenario, we can actually just listen and evaluate and say, you know, that's a good idea. That's how it should be done. Or that's dumb. What a waste of resources. Or we can have opinions, but we don't necessarily have to do anything. But in this system that Jesus calls to, the reason that it's actually, the reason that there's a bit of a catch is that in this system, we do have to do something. In this way of living, it's not a large solution that can belong to somebody else. This is an everyday deed that belongs to me and it belongs to you. These are actions that we ordinary people have to take. Lionel knew that. Lionel knew that there was something wrong and he knew that there was something that had to change and that he had a community of hurt people who were angry and who wanted to rise up and they were living living in exile and they needed to do something to change this system. And Lionel wanted to figure out what that had to be because he wanted to do something. And as a follower of Jesus, he thought, what should I do? And so Lionel decided to start rallying these people. And the way that he did that was to meet with them. And he spoke with the people who had experienced some things that were similar to himself. And he listened to their stories and he told them his story. And they allowed themselves to be healed from the things that had happened to them by sharing and by identifying with each other. And they began to forgive the people who had harmed them. Did Lionel's deed, did Lionel's everyday deed change Zimbabwe? Well, maybe actually. When I first started writing this message, uh, I hadn't really, um, Zimbabwe wasn't really in the news, but since I started writing it, Zimbabwe's actually been in the news and there's been a change in power in Zimbabwe. And uh, the leader who is, um, who is involved in some of the things that have been happening has actually been removed from power and there's been a bit of a change. And as this change happened, it hasn't been done vengefully and it hasn't been done aggressively. It's actually been done very peacefully. And we don't know what's gonna happen and I don't know where it's headed. And I don't know whether the actions of Lionel and people like Lionel made it happen the way that it did. But either way, and regardless of how it would have played out and regardless of how it does play out, Lionel was faithful to God's call to build with eternal materials and to reach out to his neighbors in ordinary people, reaching out to his neighbors as, and doing everyday deeds. And in the everyday deeds, Lionel was able to build with lasting materials, eternal materials that we're told that we should be building with. And we may feel like there are limitations to how we can do this. We may feel like we didn't get into the right school or maybe we didn't even go to school. Or we may feel like we didn't get the job that we wanted to be able to make the difference that we can be able to make to our neighbors. Or maybe we don't even have a job. Or maybe we feel like we don't have the finances to be able to do the things that we want to be able to do to save the neighborhood around us or the world. Or maybe we just don't have that kind of money. And maybe we just don't think we can do it. But the thing is, in this call, no matter who we are, all of us are exactly the right people because we are all ordinary enough we are just ordinary enough to be able to do the things that God is calling us to do. And being able to choose to take our neighbor out for coffee may not change the world. It may not end the spread of terrorism. Maybe it will. We don't know, but maybe it won't. 
But even without visible choices, we, even without visible results of our choices, to live in Jesus' revolutionary system and to eliminate the darkness, the everyday deeds will change the world, as will those, the ones that we do and the ones that our brothers and sisters do on our street and in our neighborhood and in Urhus and in Zimbabwe. And as we work together as a body, things are gonna be changed and they are being changed. And God has created us to collectively participate in the reshaping of the system of darkness and turn it into the system where the light is spreading. And the vehicle that God has chosen to shape these things is ordinary people doing ordinary deeds. And over these next few weeks together, we want to explore what this looks like for each one of us. The world changing that Jesus calls us to involves a direct call to each specific person in this room. And there are real, tangible, difference-making actions in the name of Jesus that we can all be doing and that we are all calling and that are waiting for us to step out and claim for you and I, for God's kingdom, for our neighbors. And as we do this, and in light of this advent, of the revolution of Jesus, how are we going to allow our actions to change the world? What is my everyday deed? And what's yours? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your new way that you've shown us through Jesus. God, I thank you that the darkness is being eliminated. God, I thank you that you can give us the eyes to see how we can participate. And I pray that you would. And please give us the willingness to take action. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.